This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nitin Zeen, and in today's Out of the Blue podcast, we discuss the special May 1st, 2019 conference issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine with the boss, the Blue Journal editor, Dr. Visha Vinjiha. Dr. Vinjiha, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, hello everybody. I am Visha Vinjiha. I'm the editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, known as the Blue Journal. I am a respiratory um, physician and I'm also an, and an academic and I am professor of respiratory medicine at National Heart and Lung Institute at Imperial College with a special interest in COPD and its consequences. Well, well, thank you, Visha. It's always good to hear all the uh, amazing work you're doing. And I think I wanted to start this podcast, you know, we're going to talk about several articles that conference issue is an important issue, but it was nice to see you actually in Dallas for the ATS International Conference. And I w- wanted to give our listeners a little bit of inside baseball. So as, as you being the Blue Journal editor, must be an interesting experience for you as you navigate the, the international conference. Would you mind telling our, list, our, our listeners how you spent time uh, at the conference? Well, Nitin, yes. It, the, the ATS, of course, for me is really the highlight now of the year being the editor of the Blue Journal. We do a lot of preparation. We have a number of meetings. So there are meetings of the associate editor and the deputy editors. We have meetings of the International Advisory Board, we have Publications Committee, the editors meet uh, among themselves. We also uh, meet with other groups of people, maybe guideline committees and other um, ATS committees. So it's very busy. At the same time, I also run a research group. So I have various presentations which are um, performed by my staff. We had a special blue journal Um, White Journal and Red Journal, that's the ATS family of journals. We had our own Monday afternoon um, symposium, which was absolutely um, superb. And and everybody, I think, enjoyed the discussions um, very much indeed, and it was very instructive. I also, in fact, um, belong to a number of guideline committees. So um, I took part in the ATS COPD guideline and also in the gold COPD guideline. So as you can see, there was quite a bit to do this year. Yeah, and I think what, what's interesting is, you know, you, you learn as you see what happens at the conference is that all these guidelines are many uh, years in the making. There are many conference calls, but then there are all these long meetings when people get together at the conference. So thank you for, for taking us behind the scenes here. That, that's very interesting. Now, I, I would like to, to, to talk about the conference issue, but just in general, when you have well, one of these these issues, you have a lot of fascinating papers. And that's why I wanted to spend some time with you talking about them. Just, again, in terms of process, I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to know, do you do anything different when you select articles for this issue compared to other issues of the Blue Journal? So around six months ago, we put out a call um, for papers. We always um, give around six months because the May the 1st issue, we need to prepare slightly earlier. So we need to have the papers really accepted um, formally by the end of March, beginning of April. 
For the ATS issue, we are looking at papers that will have an impact, that may be a bit controversial, um, a few clinical trials, and also we try and cover as much as we can the spectrum of a respiratory disease, critical care, and sleep. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's an it's an excellent issue, and I had uh, many different uh, uh, articles I wanted to talk about, but I didn't want to have a three-hour podcast, so I picked a few, uh, and I'd like to start by uh, by talking about an article in your area of expertise in COPD, um, and so let's start there with the the paper by Vogel, Clausen, and colleagues, and, and they looked at the heart-lung interaction, you know, the the effect of uh, bronchodilators causing lung deflation, and then subsequently improving cardiac fill filling in COPD patients with hyperinflation. And so they performed, as I understand it, a secondary analysis of, of a prior study looking at the effects of dual long-acting bronchodilators on regional pulmonary ventilation in patients with COPD and hyperinflation. So I, I think this is a very interesting area of COPD research, and I, I was hoping you could tell us how this study changes our understanding on how Improvement, improvement of hyperinflation affects cardiac filling in COPD. Well, Gitchen, I think this is a, a really superb study with the most beautiful images. Um, to any of, of you listening, go and have a look at the, um, the images um, in this paper. Cardiac um, respiration, particularly cardiac COPD interactions are very important. And we usually think of, think of systemic inflammation causing infections, causing increased um, risk of atherosclerosis, etc. But actually, mechanical factors may be very important indeed. And it was actually known before that if you deflate the lung, you can improve um, cardiac function, stroke volume, cardiac outputs. That wasn't really new. And that was the first paper from the study of dual bronchodilators on cardiopulmonary interactions. We didn't publish the first paper, it was not sent to us, but the second paper really caught my attention. Because this, for the very first time, is actually looking at pulmonary perfusion, microvascular blood flow, looking at small vessels, pulmonary blood flow, and showing that if you deflate the lung, you augment pulmonary blood flow. This is very interesting indeed. Also, they showed increase in regional ventilation and improvement in ventilation perfusion. Now, the view always was that bronchodilators act through mechanical factors. Here we're showing that the, they, that the authors are showing that there are also very important effects on pulmonary blood flow. And indeed, it opens up um, for new interventions. Now, uh, there's a lot of interest in um, COPD cardiac interactions. A study of statins was performed, which was in fact negative, negative was published in New England. There's two beta blocker studies looking at the effects of beta blockers on COPD exacerbations, one in the US and one in the UK. So there's a lot of interest in this field, and I think this opens up an, a new area of research. Now, it's not only bronchodilators, of course, we deflate with, we've got new non-pharmacological interventions, such as valves and other um, devices. So this is actually very interesting indeed. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When you, when you talked about things like statins and beta blockers, my assumptions were obviously related to, as, as you mentioned, uh, the risk of ischemia in these patients and, and, and reducing that. Um, as you think about um, effects on the pulmonary microcirculation, again, this is an area of your expertise. Do you know um, what's coming down the pipeline that may influence our, our treatment of these patients? Well, I, 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 I'm not an expert in on the pulmonary circulation, but I fair, think fair enough, fair enough. we will see, uh, we will certainly see, I think, more, more in the space. And I think other people looking at effects on endothelial function and other aspects yeah. of cardiovascular function. I myself, in my own research, very interested in the role that infection plays in this. Um, because we're interested in COPD exacerbation, particularly the role of viral infections, not only influenza, um, but also rhinovirus. So um, I, um, I, I, I was very, very pleased indeed to see this paper. Yeah, yeah. And as you mentioned, I think it's figure two is the, the MRI of the pulmonary microvascular blood flow. It's such a beautiful set of images. I definitely encourage people to actually go uh, and, and, and review those in the, in the article. Uh, well, I wanted to, to, to cover a few more papers. And, and another one that I, I found fascinating was the, the phase two study of early norepinephrine in septic shock. This is a really interesting study. The, the, the authors randomized 155 patients to low-dose norepi, uh, titrating up to 0.05 mics per kilo per minute, and just left it at that dose for 24 hours versus another 155 patients who just received placebo, uh, with both groups receiving standard of care, including open-label fluids and vasopressors. And they looked at a primary outcome of shock control by six hours, and they used the composite endpoint to define shock control. And that endpoint was met in 76% of patients in the low-dose norepi group, compared to only 48% in the placebo group with a, you know, a p-value of 0 0.001, less than that. So I'd ask for your initial impressions of that study. Well, I, I like the study very much. You know, sepsis... Um, it's important, you may not be aware, Nitin, but I spent the first five years of my senior career uh, being um, an intensive care consultant I before I moved into home ventilation and then, and then um, in fact, moved much more into mainline COPD and exacerbation. So that's, so wow. I have a particular interest. I didn't know that. I learned something new about you. That's great. Absolutely. So I, I was, I, I, I was an intensive, um, intensivist between two East End hospitals, would you believe it? So in my past days, so I have an interest in this. And, you know, the problem with shock is delayed treatment, isn't it? So this is really getting down to the crunch of what is the best vasopressor to use and how should we use it? And, you know, early intervention in most things is much more beneficial. So if you can pull off the study, then you should see, to me, a benefit. In fact, there was a difference in mortality. It wasn't powered for mortality, as you, as you say. There were some issues in that I think it's almost impossible to fully blind um, this type of study. And if you read on a bit the paper, in that some of, it, some of the studies were not actually done in the ICU. I think they were done in the general ward. But, you know, they did um, basically pull this off. I think there was 
no actually effect on organ failure. I struggled a little bit with the composite endpoints. I always do struggle a bit with composite yeah. endpoints of shock control. I don't know what you felt about that, Nitin. This is up your, your, yeah. your path. Yeah, no, no, I think that there is concern. I think that's one of the questions already. As you mentioned, you can't, you know, really completely blind people in this sort of press or study. I think it was a clever design. Um, and as you said, some patients were transferred to the ward um, during their care. And a composite endpoint of shock, you know, obviously the, the, the logical uh, uh, conclusion would be that that could that that golden time period of a better shock control may translate into improved mortality, but it was a small enough study that uh, it wasn't powered for that. Even though I think the, the, the mortality was about six percent difference, so I, I think to me it was it was a great study to see in the Blue Journal because it was such a cleverly designed study trying to look at one of the things we've struggled with for how many years when we go from augmenting cardiac output to super therapeutic levels to early goal-directed therapy with dobutamine and blood and fluids and now looking at early just low dose of getting the presser up. Uh, I thought that this was really uh, a, a novel paper and, 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 uh, and I was pleased to see it. And I don't know if you had any further comment of why you why you as an editorial group to, chose to put this uh, in the competition. Yeah, and, and the paper was accompanied actually by a very good editorial, um, yeah. which I really would recommend all of you to, to read as well, because it really puts the paper in context. I think this study does need following up with um, large, probably the definitive study, um, how to manage um, people like this with early um, presses. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Dr. Jim Russell, who's done some of the other important presser uh, prior trials, is the first author of the editorial. Well, I'd like to now talk about um, and uh, move on to asthma. Uh, and so there was a really interesting paper uh, I, I found interesting by Scroggins and colleagues from the uh, NHLBI Severe Asthma Research Program 3, or SARP 3. Um, and these investigators uh, looked at the sputum of 399 obese asthmatic patients. And they found that 13% had high extracellular DNA. And the, that group that did have higher extracellular DNA had the worst asthma control clinically. Um, and then th this group that clinically um, performed worse also had higher levels of NETs or neutrophil uh, extracellular traps. And then the, the sort of broad uh, stroke of this is that activated neutrophils and, and inflammasome activation could play a role in patients with severe asthma. Now, I've read papers about this in sepsis, but I've never seen this in asthma. So I was fascinated by it, and I was wondering what your impressions were of this study. Well, as you say, NETS, there's been a lot written about NETS, nets in, in sepsis, and I thought this is another really, really beautiful paper where we've got clinical and we've got laboratory work. It's a very nice example of a translational scientific paper, and I very much enjoyed it, beautiful graphs, um, as well. I, I think this is quite interesting. And NETs are being studied also not only in sepsis but in other immune um, conditions. And what is important is um, that they also, if you remember in the paper, they also saw that these people with more extracellular DNA and NETs also had a higher chance of chronic bronchitis. That's right. Chronic bronchitis basically is associated with airy bacterial 
colonization. So this may well explain the neutrophilic progression of the disease. You know, I think that COPD develops, for instance, when you get sufficient airway bacterial colonization to amplify the oxidative stress and we get a vicious circle. And I think the same thing may be happening and it may be a marker, these nets, for when, when you do get infection. Um, I, I must say, that this is really my interpretation. This wasn't gone into the paper, but I found this interesting. From the therapeutic point of view, inhaled DNAs will disrupt the nets. So this is quite important that we potentially do have an inhaled therapy that does need trying in these patients. But from now on, we do not study all patients with asthma, we really need to go for the particular, to stratify for the particular group of asthmatics that we would like to study. And that goes for many, many respiratory diseases. So I like this paper uh, very much, and I think there'll be much more to hear about this in the future. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And I, I think the one, uh, pointing out some of the limitations, I think that I thought were or appropriate uh, in the in the accompanying editorial, or the fact that they weren't able to sort of measure controls who were just obese and how much of this could relate to obesity as opposed to asthma. Um, I think uh, they were compared with healthy overweight control subjects, um, but not also with uh, cohorts of non-obese subjects with asthma of different severities and healthy yes. obese controls. And I think that that would be something that that would be interesting to look at. Nitin, my, my, my only problem really with the paper was to really work out why these papers, uh, why these patients were actually obese. And I assume that this was a subset yeah. of the severe asthma program. That actually is not clear in the paper why the, an obese group was chosen for the study. So um, I, I, another great paper I, I wanted to ask you about because I, I've been interested in, in sleep in the ICU. We, you know, when we take care of patients, we, it's clear that uh, they're not sleeping well and you worry about that with delirium and we're increasing that, increasingly learning how much delirium is also associated with poor long-term outcomes. And so this has been an area that I think has been in dire need of more research. Um, and so, and even sort of getting actual sleep study data. So I think that the, the paper by Dries and colleagues was fascinating. This was a study uh, that, that uh, looked at the quality of sleep prior to spontaneous breathing trials in patients requiring mechanical ventilation. And they studied something that I'll confess I wasn't familiar with, the odds ratio product that measures sleep depth. But they also used conventional polysomnogram for the 15 hours prior to spontaneous breathing trial to see if atypical sleep or pathological wakefulness relate to the outcome of a breathing trial. And so, you know, they weren't able to get adequate EEGs in all the patients. I think it was 37, but of the 37 they were, 19 passed the breathing trial and 18 failed. They didn't find any particular association between atypical sleep, pathological wakefulness, or sleep architecture, and the outcome of that SPT. So I think it was, you know, novel in the way that what they studied. Unfortunately, they didn't find any clear association. So I was wondering what, you, what your impressions were of this study. Well, I, I, I think this is a really also fascinating topic. And, you know, I've worked a lot on um, sleep myself. So from what I, how I understood the paper was that classical sleep monitoring is not very useful in the um, intensive care unit. So 
this is why you need other methods. They've come up with this odds ratio product, ORP. It took me a little, there's a lot of abbreviations in this paper. I can work this one out a little bit. And it basically measures sleep, depth, and wakefulness. So it's a good measure of wakefulness, Nitim. Is that um, correct? And then they yeah. show that this measure of wakefulness, they could relate um, to to the outcome, to the to the um, extubation outcome. That's how I saw it. But then they, they there was one other finding, and this really gets into heavy sleep science, is that they showed a disconnect between the right and left hemisphere. So if you failed your extubation trial, you had more disconnect than if you didn't. I'm not quite sure what that means. Yeah. But I was fairly convinced that this may be, with further refinement and study, uh, a method to try and assess somebody's wakefulness state. I don't think it told us too much about sleep, but more about wakefulness and whether you are suitable to do an extubation trial. Is that, is that, do you think that's right or have I missed something? So to try to set up these studies is not, is both technically difficult and financially uh, difficult. Yeah. So I think, you know, trying to get this odds ratio product to say you can measure sleep depth and awakefulness is, and that's an easier thing to logistically do would be a very useful thing to study. You know, I think I, it, it's a very small number of patients, obviously, but again, you have to understand how this is not easy to do, and this is the first time this is being done. So I think there are ways to look at this. Obviously, you would like to know more than just the 15 hours prior to the SBT and look if there are problems throughout the time they're on mechanical ventilation and be able to tease out associations more effectively. But I think this was a, certainly a first step. Um, and I think, actually, I was going to speak to, to Dr. Fleetham and see if he's interested and he's able to do a podcast to really uh, dive, dive deep into some of these issues with the, with the authors of, this, of the paper, because I think it is actually very interesting and is a first step into really trying to understand sleep and, and mechanical ventilation and predictors of, of success from liberating from mechanical ventilation, but also looking at delirium. I think it's critically important to look at this. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm really excited that you were able to take the time to, uh, to talk about a few different articles. Uh, but I also, now that since I have you here, I want to ask you, of, you know what's coming up over the next few months, the rest of 2019, at least a preliminary look uh, at, at what's coming in the Blue Journal. So could you give our listeners a, a little sneak peek into what they can look forward to reading in, in upcoming issues of the American Journal of Respiratory Well, Experiment? you did warn me about this. So I, I've chosen three papers that are um, already online, but will be coming up um, into the issues. Obviously, I can't tell you about what is not accepted yet. Because That's right. That's right. It could just not be accepted, these things we always have to keep. But I've got three papers which I think are very interesting on slightly different topics than we've discussed. One is Sibylla et al. and James Chalmers from Dundee, UK, is the senior author. And they've done something which I think is very important. Now, if you look at inhaled antibiotics in bronchiectasis and COPD, it is very difficult to get a positive result. They went back and looked at these old studies and effectively put them together, but particularly looked where they had evidence, a quantitative estimate of bacterial load. So if you have high bacterial load and you can do it by PCR, most of this was still done by colony forming units because it was pre-technology. And they showed that if you 
stratify these studies by high versus low bacterial load, then you see positive responses to inhaled antibiotics in bronchiectasis. Now, to me, this is very important because I've done a lot of trials of airway infection in various ways. And every time I used to try to stratify, I was told by grant giving authorities, no, 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 you've got to make it real life. You've got to make sure it fits all. But now we're going back. And thank goodness we're stratifying. And then we're going to get some order into the system. So this, I thought, um, is really, really worth reading. My second paper is on pollution. This comes from George Thurston's group, and this is Lynn et al. It's actually a 17-year follow-up of the effects of ozone and shows clearly, wow. and you know, as you know, there was there's quite a bit of discussion as to whether ozone, what it does, how how much it affects mortality, and or mortality, whether it's cardiovascular disease or in COPD, and this shows effects categorically on mortality in both cardiovascular disease and COPD. My number three paper comes from the Belgians. Um, it's Villemich et al. Wim Janssen is the senior author. This is a fascinating study. This is a study where the authors, in fact, treated patients when they came in with an exacerbation of COPD when they were admitted to hospital. So severe hospital requiring exacerbations with azithromycin and continued for three months and then followed for another six months. Now, what's interesting about this paper that they didn't quite finish it. So we've actually, um, I think they were powered, I think for over 400 patients, they recruited 300. And these are really difficult studies to do because of course they're exclusion criteria, people are on it, etc. Right. But they basically didn't quite meet the primary endpoint. But the secondary outcomes, a lot of them, showed benefit of azithromycin for three months after admission um, to hospital compared to placebo and prevented um, readmission. What was even, again, interesting, a little bit like our composite endpoint um, in the sepsis trial, they used the composite endpoint, which probably was not ideal. And I think if they just used time to the next event, exacerbation event, they may have had a positive result. But this is, again, um, a study to set off a big um, phase three trial, and it definitely needs doing. What do you do after hospital admission to prevent readmission? And I think this is a slither of hope here that we have found an intervention that we can do to try and prevent readmissions, which is a major problem in COPD. And in fact, I thought it's so important, this paper. I actually wrote the editorial um, myself together with Fernando J. Martinez. So oh. um, I've just noticed today that my editorial isn't accepted yet, which is a little bit worrying. The paper has <laughs> only been accepted about two or three weeks ago. So I hope one of my fellow deputy editors is reading it. Maybe the ATS has cause some delay. So I think those are three, for instance, examples of exciting papers that I really hope you all enjoy. Oh, oh thank you for that. And I'm sure that the, uh, the deputy editors are in the, have a post-ATS hangover like the, uh, the rest of us after such a, a busy time. But, but thank you during this time, uh, Dr. Benjiha, for, for a great discussion of uh, a conference issue with so many great articles. Uh, and to our listeners, I would encourage you to uh, to, to check out the conference issue at atsjournals.org. Uh, you can search the archive for the five 
119 issue of the journal, or you can search any of these individual articles. And we encourage you to keep listening to our Out of the Blue podcasts. You can subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nitin Singh for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you. Thank you.